there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis Um, It starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Do you love to listen to audio as much as I do? Have you ever tried an audio book? As a fan of this podcast, you must already enjoy listening to stories just like the other green future growers. Well, the Organic Gardener podcast has teamed up with Audible to offer you a free audio book. Just go to www.organicgardenerpodcast forward slash book or type book into the search bar at the organicgardenerpodcast.com and you can get listening to your first audio book today. Okay, Jackie, I'm all I'm all set. And another thing that I wanted to do, I wanted to make a coupon code for your listeners so that they can get a discount on the book or even a, or a subscription to the magazine. Basically, I was going to make a, a coupon code for them um if they're if they're interested so they can get a discount on that stuff oh my gosh that would be so awesome that would be great okay i just want to run that by you make sure that was cool with you so yeah i'll just say that you know at at some point when it seems appropriate i'll 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 mention it okay and did you we talked about how new society is willing to to give away a book if you want to i think it's really up to you to decide how to how to give it away but um if you want to, um, if you want to, really, I'm so excited to hear that because I, I had to write in your book. Like, I kind of wanted to give it away to one of my listeners because I kind of feel like if somebody sends me a book, but it was one of those ones that I just couldn't part with. And I know my husband's going to read it a bunch, and um, yeah, so that would be great. Sure, of Good. course, I would love to yeah. give away a book. Okay, um, okay, great. Well, then you can. Yeah, I'll let you. Um, uh, decide how to <laughs> how to choose a lucky winner, but but um, that's something you, if you want to, you could mention, and they will. Um, I think they just need, you know, they just need it. You decide who gets it, and they just need a name and ad- an address to send it to. Wow! Well, thank you so much. That's so sweet. Sure. Well, I love my listeners. I call them green future growers because we're all dedicated to growing a greener future and just, um, you know, it's it's about as much about saving the planet and just caring for Mother Nature as it is growing, you know, produce and um, lawns and just whatever kind of like organic oasis they want to develop. So I know we're going to learn tons of stuff today. Now, you have a copy of the questions that I kind of go through, right? Because even though my listeners tell me, don't be so stuck to my script. And even though you're episode 282, I still like, I find myself getting lost when I get off. Yeah. My listeners tell me a lot. My mom's the number one person who tells me to be quiet. (laughs) 
<laughs> and let my guest speak. She's pretty funny. She'll be like, she'll even like at the beginning of like the episode, I'll put like a little promo to either like check out free garden course or something that we're doing. And she's like, how do I skip past you? I don't want to hear you. How do I get to the guest? I'm like, mom, it's just a 30 second promo. And she's like, yeah, but you talk too much. Like, okay. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, So you're in Maine, right? Yep. So Mike Lots and I have been looking at this farm in Maine that we're kind of drooling over. It's a uh, hundred. Is it 175 acres? I think it's 175 acres for 225,000. It has 13 acres of farmland. And then the rest is like, I don't know, woods, I guess. And there's a pond and there's a giant house plus a backup house cabin or something. It needs a ton of work. It's in this place called yeah. Ripley, Maine. Yeah. Do you know where Ripley. that is? Not off the top of my head. Let me look it up it's here. It's kind of like southwest of Bangor. Uh -huh. Bangor? Is that how you say it? Uh, most people around here say Bangor. Bangor. Bangor, but it varies... A lot. <laughs> uh, I've always wanted to live in the middle of 100 acres. Mike grew up on a 1,200-acre ranch, and we're on the last 20 in Montana. But we really like Maine's progressive politics. And so Mike yeah. goes, why don't you look at farms in Maine? And what's the first one that comes up is this 175-acre place. And we're like, oh. If we keep thinking it would make a great organic school. Because it's got like this extra um, yeah. house and then we could live in the cabin or maybe build a cabin like farther away from the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I did know where Ripley is. Yeah, actually, I mean, Ripley's only about 20 some miles away from where I am, where I live. So It is? Um, wow. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good area. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's very rural, but you're, you're probably uh, used to that. And... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, well, I like Maine a lot. I would think, um, yeah, I mean, that's a great price. I guess that. Yeah. It's an incredible know? price. I mean, the house you can see needs like the wall, like it looks like somebody started to redo it and quick. Cause like the wallpaper's all like peeling off and it's like, but it's like the kind of work that Mike does. I mean, he built our house from scratch, but he kind of likes that interior stuff more than like plumbing and electric and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it sounds like a good deal. I would definitely, I would think it, you would, you would need to fly out and, and look at it. I mean, I like Maine a lot, you know, I'm not from Maine and we, and we moved here and I'm, I'm very happy we did. So I guess I can, I can recommend it <laughs> to others. Um, and there are a lot of farms, you know, being a very old state, um, you know, Maine is going to have our bicentennial next year. And, I, the, the, the town, the little tiny town that I live in of Cornville was founded in the late 1700s. So it's, it's, it's very old. And I think Maine actually is a very good, um, small farm state because we don't have the big expanses of land like there are out West. And so the, and, and plus they were there, the, the place, uh, the place was, uh, the state was carved up into sort of little farmsteads, you know, back before people were having huge farms. And so, 
So, um, and it's not flat. So, so it kind of remains that way. That's, that's pretty typical. There are a lot of farms. I mean, that, that's a lot like the farm that I live on is that there's a house, a barn, um, 30 or 40 acres of open land. And then, and then, um, another, um, 70 or something of, of woods. And so, you know, people did, would farm and get their firewood and, you know, have a, have a homestead. And, and so sounds like it's one of those types of places. Um, yeah, I mean, it could be a great deal, especially if, if you guys have done home, home renovations. I mean, I think that, I think, you know, that would be the catch on a place like that is that it's, it's essentially, it's a, sounds like a fixer upper, you know, it's, uh, you would have to do things to it, but it, if, if you're, you, if you know that going into it, and especially if you have some of those skills, it could, could be a really good deal. I know. And see what we keep thinking is I, we've always wanted to plant hemp and we're thinking 13 acres could turn into a nice hemp field. Like yesterday, even my mom's talking to me, like this little old lady on Long Island, she's like me and my buddies, we went to the CBD oil place and we're like, there she's like every single person I know is talking about CBD oil and, and you know, hemp's growing. And we're like, I don't know. We keep thinking of that. And we could like, like we could have like the, building could be a school because i like my degree is in elementary education and with my podcast i don't know we're just you know like we could have some vegetables and then but mostly i don't know so yeah like you said we would have to come out there and talk to people and see for sure and but it's like the first place we've ever thought about uh, trading our place uh -huh. for our 20 acres that we've ever seen and it's just so funny because mike was like oh you should look up the politics in maine and that was the first place I found. It could be sold by now. Mm -hmm. I found it in December. So I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, let's talk about you. Yeah, sure. Should I introduce Please. you? Okay. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. I am super thrilled to int introduce my guest today um, because he's written a great book called The Organic No-Till Farming Revolution, High Production Methods for Small-Scale Farmers. But he also has just this incredible background. He's the editor of Growing for Market magazine. He also wrote this book, The Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook. He worked at Johnny Select Seed in the research department for years. And so from Cornville, Maine, here is Andrew Mefford to dazzle us and drop tons of golden seeds. So thanks for joining sure, us today, Jackie, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. And you have some surprises for listeners and just why don't you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and how you've got to do all these things. And, and I don't know. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, would say that I, I grew up in, in, in the state of Virginia, uh, but in Northern Virginia, up, up close to, um, Washington DC where, um, uh, where it's very suburban. And so my, my entry point into farming what really was through gardening. So um, we had a garden there um, at, at where I grew up in Virginia. And then I, I had a farm one generation back in my family. So my dad's my dad's mom had a, a fairly large farm in Pennsylvania. And um, so as as I as I grew up, I got more and more interested in the gardening or, or the growing side of things, which which started out as as having a garden. Um, in fact, we, we had this compost pile for years at my house before, when, uh, before we really started gardening. So it was just sort of like Mount compost more, you know, we just kept piling stuff up and up and up. And so 
So um, we had this huge compost piles, and finally I said, uh, well, we should we should have a garden. And so um, that was one of my first gardening experiences was spreading that compost pile out over the garden because we were we had been wanting to have a garden and we just hadn't done it. And and luckily we had been making the compost pile on the garden site. So all I had to do was just spread it out. And um, it, it ended up being a really great garden and still is because uh, because there was so much organic matter there. And um, so. Uh, I love that story because it teaches people like you don't have to have a garden just to be saving compost and like, look how good it's going to be for you. Right. I mean, compost is, is like fine wine, right? The You know, the older it gets, the better it is. And so. Um, I, I figure that was yeah. sort that I think that was a great low, uh, low investment way to, to, to get ready to, to have a garden f for us. And yeah, potentially anybody who's listening to this is we just took all that organic matter, even though we didn't have a garden and just kept piling it up and piling it up. And, t and then and it was just sitting there rotting. And then, you know, when we were ready to use it, there it was. So uh, that was kind of that was my entry point. And as I as I got more and more interested in growing, um, I really thought that I wanted to um, to actually have a farm because so I, I went to school for journalism and my my first few jobs and apprenticeships in journalism I, I was just in a cubicle all day long and I realized this is just not what I want to do I realized I needed to be outside and and at the same time um, I was actually talking to my brother a lot about um, about organic food because I had always kind of uh, ignorantly and blissfully, um, just assumed that the government was just making safe, making sure that whatever, whatever, uh, is sprayed on the food is safe. And so, um, my talking with my brother about a lot of this stuff was a wake up call for me. And I was sort of like, I can't believe they let you spray that on food. And so, so that combination of having a farm in the family and, uh, becoming interested in organics and also just not wanting to spend my whole day in a cubicle um, led me to apprentice uh, on a farm that was close to my grandma's farm up in Pennsylvania because uh, it, it, what I was thinking was that that would be the obvious way is that I had this connection uh, to the, the family farmland and so that I wanted to start a, a farm there and I thought it made the most sense to work to work on a farm oh. in the same neck of the woods. Uh, so that's what I did. I started out, I did an apprenticeship on a farm in Pennsylvania, loved it, uh, met my wife there, in fact. And so we did what she calls the apprentice circuit. So we we went off. Um, in fact, that that fall at the end of the farming season in Pennsylvania, we took a road trip and visited farms all over the country. And we ended up uh, picking a farm out in California. So we we went straight from the fall season on a farm in Pennsylvania to a to the winter season. I think we started our our job in a, a part of the California that has a Mediterranean climate, uh, January 21st or something like that. And one of our first jobs was bucking up the uh, the olive olive wood into firewood because they had they had they had olive trees on the farm. And so uh, from there we went up to Washington State and then um, ended up working at uh, the research farm for Virginia Tech down in Blacksburg, Virginia. And then after after that, we started our we did start a farm in Pennsylvania. And that's a long story. We um, we lost the use of that land. And so we bounced around a little bit more. In fact, we did more apprenticeships. We did apprenticeships in uh, upstate New York and then out on the coast of Maine, which is how we got to Maine. So so um, now now I do live on a farm in Cornville, Maine, and it was just serendipitous that uh, we, when we relocated our farm, this our farm is 
about 45 minutes away from the Johnny Selected Seeds research farm, which is longer than I wanted to commute. But I also, uh, we do live out in a rural area. Everything's all spread out. That's not a, a really unusual amount of, of, of time to drive for somewhere out here. So, um, That's yeah, like yeah people in a lot of rural areas can probably um, relate. It, a lot of suburban areas for that matter. I mean, the, the commute where I grew up in Northern Virginia is, is insane. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Like my brother is only 17 miles from the city, but can spend like three hours stuck yeah. in traffic sometimes. And usually it's like yeah. at least an hour. Which is why I don't live in so Northern sure. Virginia anymore. I, I, I just can't take that. You know, it's, it's too much time in the car. So um, you, we moved to Maine and mainly to farm. Although, um, you know, one thing that a lot of growers around here do is to work for Johnny's in the wintertime. Uh, um, in fact, um, we were on the commercial grower um, line so that if you if you called into Johnny's um, and said that you were a commercial grower, uh, I, w you know, I would have potentially been there helping you with make your order. And um, so I was planning on just doing that for a winter job when this this job in the research department became available, um, running trials on on uh, different crops, including tomatoes, which w tomatoes are just my spirit crop you know they're they're my they're my favorite thing and so so i thought well that just sounds too interesting and i said what the heck and so i, I applied for it and sure enough <laughs> I, I got that and so i ended up working there at johnny's in for seven years um in the research department yeah running trials on tomatoes and i got more and more um involved in greenhouse uh trialing as well because as you know, the, the National Resource Conservation Service was funding a lot of high tunnels at the time. And so uh, we we had a, just an increasing demand for greenhouse varieties and, and recommendations. You know, people people would build a, a high tunnel who'd never had one before and call call us up at Johnny's and say, all right, now I've got a high tunnel. What do I plant in it? <laughs> and so we, we were investing a lot of energy in, <laughs> in um, you know, answering that question for people as far as finding good varieties uh, that would that would do well for people in, um, in in high tunnels, and so that led that led to my first book, um, which is called the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook, uh, which is which is all about growing in greenhouses and hoop houses organically. Because um, not only was I putting a lot of energy into it for Johnny's, but I was putting a lot of energy into it on our own farm. Because if you consider that we moved from Pennsylvania to Maine, it, it, and my favorite thing is tomatoes. We went from a, a place where you had a nice long outdoor tomato season to a place where, in my in my mind, it's not commercially worthwhile to grow large fruited tomatoes outdoors just because they take they take so long to ripen and our our season is so short. Um, so that's probably a lot like where we are. But then, like, isn't like G Martin Fortier even north of you? But is his season? I would different? guess that his or his no? season is probably pretty similar. Is his um he's mostly. Because, like, I think he says that's, like, his number one crop, right? Is, like, hot hoop house. Well, that's why he's growing them in a hoop house. And I know he, he has a nice uh, greenhouse, too. Yeah. So I think, think that's um, – I think that's 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 it. Is that growers in these northern areas um, really need to to use season extension to to make those crops profitable? 
preferable. Because here we have all the diseases of heat and humidity, get all the spots and splits and things on your tomatoes. And to make matters worse, you can't plant them out in the field until June. And then by the time you get those big beefsteaks are starting to ripen, the, the, the weather's cooling back off in August. So I think for a gardener, I think lots of gardeners grow large fruited tomatoes up here. But it's the kind of thing where as a commercial grower, if you're trying to, to make a profit off of it, if you only get uh, pick one or two clusters off of your outdoor large fruited tomatoes, it probably doesn't pay for all the effort that you went to to set that crop up and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's. Yeah, that's that, a great well, that's point, a decision that sure. we made, and it seems to be what everybody around here is doing. Most most of the commercial growers that I know around here are um, are 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 producing those large fruited tomatoes in, indoors. It's just it's just a trend, and and I, I think that would hold for JM Fortier. I hope he doesn't mind me speculating about it because I've I've been to one of his his places, uh, and he's more or less due west because if you think about it. We are we're we're in central Maine and he's uh, just what just over the border from Vermont or, or New York. And so I, I would guess I would guess that he has a pretty similar um, a similar climate. And so there's a lot of demand for those local tomatoes because they are hard to produce up here. So that's that's just what it is, is that I think growers are going to protected culture, greenhouses or hoop houses instead of um, trying to grow them in the field up here. <clears throat> yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's what he says is that they're grown. Yeah. Into, it's his hoop house tomato. So that continue, uh, I continue to be obsessed with greenhouse tomatoes. But um, I did leave Johnny's in, uh, at the end of 2015 uh, specifically to take over the magazine. So uh, now I'm the editor of Growing for Market magazine, which is something that I had written for uh, from time to time. Uh, leading up to, to taking it over. If, um, if, if I don't know how, how familiar you readers are, we're now in our 28th year with the magazine. It was started by a woman who is a flower farmer in Kansas named Lynn Bazinski. In fact, she wrote the book called The Flower Farmer, which continues to be a, a really standard reference for, um, for flower growers. Um, yeah, I love that book. Like I totally, that's where part yeah. of my start was. Thinking, and I still dream about being a flower. Oh farmer yeah, I, I remember buying that book back 15 years ago now, when when I was working on the research farm at Virginia Tech, getting getting close to the point of starting our own farm and wanting to incorporate some flowers in with the veggies. So so she started the magazine tw 28 years ago now, and then just um, three years ago, she just was ready to to p pass it on. Asked me if I would be interested, and uh, well. I thought it was a great opportunity, but I asked her why, and she said because I was already writing for the magazine as a and as a very small publication, you know, we're we're not affiliated with any larger publications. We're just a standalone, really kind of like a family business. Uh, so she said that um, she wanted she wanted somebody to take the magazine over that that was um, was writing uh, for the magazine, so they would continue to do so because she said as as a very small publication, she thought it was important for. Uh, for the editor to to write for it, and since I was already writing for it, she she, she thought of me, and I was I was honored because because growing for market is something that we've been subscribed to for over a decade, um, and it's really the only publication specifically for uh, direct market farmers, right? Farmers market, farm stands, CSA, uh, those kind of things, and so I I loved it and wanted somebody to take care of it, and I thought 
might as well be me. And so, and that was was a good change because I've got young kids, and so now I I run the magazine from our farm, and so that has allowed me to really cut down on the time that I spend out driving around and spend more time on the farm and spend more time with my kids, and and so so um, hopefully that's good that's good all around, and we'll keep the keep the magazine um, strong into the future. Uh, if if your readers aren't familiar with it. Uh, it's uh, growingformarket.com. Now, since it's been a, been around for 28 years, uh, we still do a paper magazine. Um, people can also get it digitally if they if they prefer to look at stuff online. Um, I did I did make a coupon code for your listeners if if they want to uh, are interested in subscribing. The code is Garden G A R D E N D E N all lowercase. Um, and with that code, they can get they can get 20% off. The no-till book, um, we sell the flower farmer, so they could get the flower farmer, or that that discount can be applied to any subscription. So I just want to throw that out there. So if people are interested, they could they could try it out for um, for for a little less. And it's also the kind of thing if people are interested in seeing a sample issue, they can just contact us. We're also always happy to send a paper or a digital um, digital sample issue. So it's on the one hand, it is more oriented towards commercial growers, small commercial growers. But on the other hand, um, serious uh, serious home gardeners and homesteaders are going to want all the same advantages as a commercial grower is going to want. So that it might, it might be of interest. People can check it out. It's, it's, it's a great resource for, for, um, for, for small growers, certainly. Yeah, it is. It has great tips and things in it. And we finally were able to subscribe this year, um, which is part of what made me reach out to you too. Because uh, I think I saw the thing about the book in the magazine in the first episode, in the first issue that we got. And I was like, I need yeah, to reach out to him. Yeah, so glad you did. So, oh, me too. So, do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? Um, hey, and wait, before I say that, that is so sweet of you to to give a discount to my listeners. Thank you yeah, so much. You're, you're most that. welcome. I, well, I love... When I'm telling people about something, I like to be able to make it, you know, sweeten the pot, make it a little easier for them to check it out. And and so that way, if people hear about this and they think it, they're interested in it, uh, it'd be that a little bit cheaper for them to to uh, to actually see the book. And I think they will be because and the magazine, because I keep talking about producing like a golden seeds magazine since when my listeners drop what I call like value bombs, uh-huh. I call them golden seeds. But I just have never had the time to produce it because it would just be this this huge thing. So I think they would love um, getting the Growing yes. to Market magazine. And your book. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about your book or do you want to tell us about something? Um, this year? Let's talk about the book. Let's talk. Um, okay. I, so I, I, if I could frame it just a little bit, I should say that um, – what I was studying at um, when I worked at Virginia Tech was no-till because the, um, as I mentioned, the year before I worked on the research farm at Virginia Tech, I had worked on this really big farm. It was about 100 acres of organic vegetables out um, close to Seattle. And granted, they had they were cover cropping and doing all the stuff that organic growers do. And they maybe they had 80, 80 acres in vegetables and 20 acres in cover crops. But either way, to me, that's a really big farm. And so um, the way that they handled their weeds was with cultivation. So I drove the tractor a lot. And I'm really just not a tractor guy. Um, 
I uh, it was good to, to to really learn how to drive one. And but then I realized, well, I, I don't want to spend my day sitting in a cubicle, but I also don't I don't want to spend my day sitting on top of a tractor. And I realized that's a personal thing. I think some people almost almost farm to be able to drive their tractors. And 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 I think that's great for people who 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 are so inclined. But I realized, you know, after spending all day yeah. on a tractor that 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 was not what I wanted to do. I'm a plant person. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to mess around with the plants and working with them and trying to figure out how to make them happy is what, what I'm in it for. So I thought there's got to be a better way to control these weeds. And uh, this was about 15 years ago now. And so it, 15 years ago, if you put no-till into the search engine, um, you would get this, this, what I call the roller crimper method, uh, in the book, which is something that was pioneered by the Rodale Institute and the National Resource Conservation Service and um, some university cooperators like the one there at um, at, at Virginia Tech. And so I'd since uh, what I was doing at the time was going off and working on farms in the summertime. And, and I had this job close uh, there in Virginia, close to where I grew up that would take me back every winter. And so I'd come back I'll come back to Virginia every winter, make some money because I was trying to save money to start a farm at the time. And so um, I, I, I contacted this professor that was working at no -till, on no-till there at Virginia Tech. His, his name was Ron Morse. So I said, um, hey, I, I'm, I'm interested in learning how to control my weeds with less tractor work. Um, I said, can you, uh, you know, could we talk about this? And he, he invited me down to Blacksburg where the research farm is. And he, he was very generous with his time. And and told me all about what he was doing. And then um, at the end of it, he offered me a job because he he was uh, he was trying to find people to help him with his field studies um, who are interested in what he was doing, because, of course, you'll you'll do a better job if you if you care about it. And so he offered me a job to help help with the, the, um, the field work. And I accepted because I, I thought uh, I was about a year away from starting a farm at this point. And I thought, OK, great, I'm going to learn this method and um and use it on my farm so that's what i did as far as working there but what i realized um from working on the research farm was that that roller crimper method it does not scale down real well which which should be important for your listeners i'm thinking um because if, if it's an, the organic gardening podcast i'm thinking they they're probably um gardening on a smaller scale and so, so what I realized was that the roller crimper method works really well, but that it, it does it doesn't really scale down. In fact, we we started out the following year leasing three acres from my from my grandma, and that was really even too uh, that was really even too small to use the roller crimper method. Um, the real the real reason being, uh, just I'm going to really summarize uh, in a nutshell that the roller crimper method. The idea is that you you grow a very lush cover crop with a lot of biomass and then most um uh growers are they, they they use a special implement um usually on a tractor but you can you can get one for a a walk behind tractor like a bcs so it can be applied to smaller scales but they they roll the cover crop down with this implement that looks kind of like a a, a 50 gallon drum uh on its side and but instead of just being smooth it has these fins um every few inches that so oh i wonder because like in the pictures it does yeah it's like it's a basically a drum with fins on it so the drum rolls physically rolls the crop down and what the fins do is that they they put a little crimp they put a little kink in the stem 
of the, the cover crop, because if you've ever seen a lush crop of rye or rye mixed in with vetch, you know, they're, they don't want to die. They're very, they're very lush. And, and the problem is that if you, if you just roll them down with something round, they may actually pop back up again. Um, but if you roll them down at the right stage and, and have those little crimpers on there, the crimpers kink the stem and they interrupt the flow of, um, of moisture and nutrients from the, the, the roots up to the top of the plant. And so it's, it's a way that you can organically kill a very lush cover crop, but timing is really important. You have, I was just going to say, I felt like in your book, the number one key that seemed to permeate through all the stories was timing have, is key. Yeah, no, that, Sorry, that, that's a good, they, they all have timing. Um, but, um, but the roller crimper method is especially sensitive to timing because to to kill a lush cover crop like that, they typically say to do it um, when the crop is in flower because um, if it hasn't flowered yet, the, the crop has a much more um, high chance of, of springing back up. And if it's been in flower for too long, then it's starting to set seed and you'll be planting your own weeds. So... And the issue with the roller crimper method is that you mostly get a planting window, uh, planting windows in the spring. And like a lot of gardeners and most small farmers, you're doing multiple plantings of the things that you're selling a lot. You're maybe planting salad mix every single week. You may be planting radishes and turnips and things like that every single week. Right. So you're doing succession cropping and you have all these little plantings. It doesn't work to just have one big planting window in the spring. So. Um, so that was the main problem for us with the roller crimper method. It wasn't that it didn't work. It's that it didn't work for the style of farming that we were doing. Now, uh, if I were to plant, say a pumpkin patch or a big, a big planting of outdoor tomatoes or something like that, it could be a really good method because you could just establish a cover crop. And then what you're doing is you're growing your mulch in place. You know, you get a good cover crop established and then you roll it down. And so you get this you get this, um, all this residue that's now dead on top of the soil. And so it's, it's just like mulching with hay or straw or something like that, except you grew the, the hay or straw in place. So, um, that's, that's probably the method of least interest to, to this podcast. So maybe we can, maybe we can just move on because I think most of your listeners aren't going to want to, um, do this method. And on the other hand, if, if they did, uh, let's say if, if somebody wanted to have a big pumpkin patch or something like that, well, they could, uh, they could either get the book or there are a lot of resources out there on on the, the roller crimper method. In fact, there's there's a book written by. Um, but yeah, by Rodale called Organic No-Till Farming. And so um, which is but it's it it exclusively focuses on that that. Um, yeah. So and that's. that's yeah, so so that's sure. that's a good that's a good resource. That, you know, if if people are specifically interested in roller crimper, uh, that's out there, and that's also one reason why I didn't deal didn't uh, dwell on the roller crimper method more in the book because well, I did a few interviews and um, tried to lay out what it was, but I also thought it's it's probably the method least interested to small farmers and and um, gardeners alike. So. A lot of my listeners are backyard gardeners who've been like gardening for a long time. A lot of them have master gardener certifications and a lot are interested in either 
developing a small market farm or creating some kind of green jobs around that, becoming a seed farm saver, you know, like they're definitely interested in all of this, but um, yeah, that was one of the things I think about your book that's so great is you talk about there's as many kinds of farms as there are farmers and, and people are doing different things. But yeah, let's talk about some of the other techniques. Yeah, sure. Um, and um, if people are familiar with lasagna gardening or those kinds of, um, of gardening methods that are mostly involve layering mulches, so it, essentially building up from the soil instead of rototilling or or digging your amendments down into the soil that's the, these the methods that I talk about in the book are very similar to that and so I guess I should also talk about my methodology a little bit um wh what happened is that um when we when we started our farm almost 15 years ago now um I really kind of forgot about no-till because I realized uh, even though I'd worked on this farm learning learning the method, when I realized it didn't really apply to what we were doing, I, I just had to move on. Uh, you know, we started a farm, had kids, you know, life happens, and I, I really kind of forgot about no-till since it didn't apply to our immediate situation. And then um, a couple years ago, we, we started having some, some articles about no-till in the magazine. And... Um, in particular, there was one profile of a few different growers um, who are using a few different methods. And I thought, I thought these people figured it out. These people figured out how to do what I was wanting to do 15 years ago. And so I said, all right, all right. I said, I want to I want to adapt my farm to these methods. Where's the source? And so I went out. I started looking for a book that would tell me how to do no till on a small farm scale. And other than an odd article here and there in Growing for Market or some somewhere like that, um, I could not find one a comprehensive resource. And so I set out to write the book that I wanted to read and I, I, I more or less did. And I, so the way that I did that is through interviews, um, because I, I was familiar with the ideas from, from having in, been interested in no-till and working on the, the no-till research farm. But there are all these methods that I wasn't familiar with that growers had more or less um, a lot of them had just developed them on their own over trial and error over a number of years. And so since there's no one way to do no-till, if you look at the book, um, there are a number of different methods and most of the growers use more than one method. You know, they're kind of borrowing, um, depending on the situation. So, um, I thought, well, there's no, there's no way you can write the book on no-till. I, what I should do is go, go interview people. And so, so that's what I did. I did about 20 interviews um, most of them on farm, whenever possible, I, I visited the farm and, um, 17 made it into the book. So the format of the book is in, is there's a, there's a brief introduction by me sort of laying out the methods and laying out the advantages of, of no tilling. And then there's 17 interviews along with pictures from these farms, uh, Grouped by method, so so that you get you get to hear from a couple few farmers about one method, and then a, a couple few farmers about another method, because I thought that was the most valuable thing. Is because of course we all have different climates, different soils, different pests, you know, different crops we're going growing right. So I wanted I wanted uh, readers to really hear it from the the horse's mouth of of how people develop these systems and when to use them, because I thought. Um, different people are, are, are going to want to use different methods depending on where they are. Um, for example, uh, the only, the, the only two examples that I found of people using the deep straw mulch 
method. They were in the southern half of the country. And so and I thought about this. I thought, well, I think I think the reason that we're seeing people using deep straw mulch in the southern half of the country is because their problem is almost things getting too hot. And so they can use a light colored mulch like straw. Um, and that may actually help their crops from from overheating. Whereas in the northern half of the country, I think the problem is more how to get enough heat to the crop. And so um, growers aren't aren't using the deep straw mulch so much in the northern half of the country because it's going to uh, cool the soil down. So, you know, one thing I can say about the methods um, is that uh, the, a lot of them have uh, there's one way that people establish their gardens with no-till, and then there may be another way that people um, people keep them going. So, and one of the other big differences between no-till and the more tillage-based systems that I've seen is that in no-till, people tend to use the non-biodegradable mulches. So plastic mulches, you know, landscape fabric, things like that. They tend to use the, the non-biodegradable mulches more when the crop is not growing, which is in in contrast to a lot of the farms and gardens that I see, uh, a lot of farms and gardens I see using the black plastic, right? They'll, they'll put black plastic over a row and then they'll, they'll plant, say, tomatoes or something through the black plastic to, to both mm -hmm. suppress weeds and warm the soil up some more. Um, or I've seen a lot of growers using that landscape fabric so they can either buy it with holes that are pre-punched or they'll use a... Um, a flame weeder to burn holes in, or they'll use a knife to just cut holes. And so they're in the situation where they've got the crop growing through a, a non-biodegradable plastic mulch. In no-till, the the most the time that those non-biodegradable mulches are, are deployed is mostly before the crop to prep the soil. And there's two very specific ways that I'm, I'm thinking of here. The most common one that I've seen is occultation, so which is a fancy word for tarping, right? So Basically, um, you put a you put a tarp down for long enough, and whatever's whatever's under the under the tarp is going to die. The vegetation's going to die. The soil life is going to come up and eat it. And so, if you leave a tarp on for long enough, you're going to get a blank slate. I mean, it's it's the same principle. If you walked out on your lawn with a five gallon bucket and sat it set it down and didn't come back for two months, when you came back and picked that bucket up, you would have a perfect. Um, a perfectly clean uh, disc of soil down there wh where where your bucket was, and so it just takes, it just works on that principle of uh, de depriving any vegetation of light um, and keeping it warm is going to kill the vegetation, and then once the vegetation is dead, the soil life is going to come up and and eat it, and so the, uh, that uh, occultation or tarping is one of the most common ways that that growers will um, will prepare the soil, right? Because the problem the problem is okay, so. You, you know, I've got a field or a, a lawn or whatever, and I, I want to plant something out in it. You can't you can't plant into grass, of course. So so th the first problem of no-till becomes, OK, well, how how do I prepare the soil in the first place? So tarping is one of those ways. Another way is solarization. So by solarization, it's the same thing as occultation, except using clear plastic. And so the, the idea with solarization is that you you confine the greenhouse effect to the top inch of soil or so. And so people are taking used greenhouse plastic or, uh, you know, clear plastic from wherever they would get it or construction plastic, something like that. So they'll use sandbags or something to, to put the plastic down. And um, what I've heard from growers is that if they have a sunny day 
in the 70s uh, that they that that will kill the weeds in their bed in 24 hours. Now, if you're dealing with an established sod or a pasture or something like that, you're probably going to need more than 24 hours. But um, that is a way to start prepping the soil. And that's also a way to do to do turnovers from one from one crop to the next. Um, it's one of, one of the methods that growers are using is to simply put down the clear tarp for, for 24 hours. And then they've cut out the, all those steps of rototilling, rototilling and reforming beds and all that stuff. They can basically uh, go f- at the end of a crop, kill, kill whatever weeds might be going there, growing there with a clear tarp, and then, um, then do whatever they do to, to replant, you know, add, add more fertilizer, um, add compost. And so, um, so that's what I mean about how growers are in a lot of cases, they're using one method to, to, to prep the soil. And then a lot of times they're using, they're either using, um, a deep compost mulch. So, so, uh, once they've killed the, the weeds that are, that are on their plot, uh, with either solarization or occultation, then they continue to suppress the weeds with, Oh, four or six inches of compost. I mean, that's a pretty typical, that's a pretty typical number that I heard from these growers when they're starting the system. Okay. So, and, and what I love about this is that I feel like no-till makes it possible to grow almost regardless of how bad your soil is, because I talked to some people whose soil was really bad. And if you, if they were thinking, uh, you know, they, they have maybe soil with one or 2% organic matter, it's basically clay. If you if you went at that at, from the perspective of I have to um, stir enough organic matter into my clay to get it um, it you know into the high single digits, uh, it would take you years to get there. But what these growers are doing is they're just layering it on. So they'll it, it was not uncommon for me to talk to growers who would kill the weeds in the first place by using solarization or occultation, and then put down four or six four to six inches of compost. And the idea being that that much compost will suppress any further weeds from coming up uh, from below that might have survived. Plus, of course, that much compost has a lot of fertility in it. And so that's a way that people could build a raised bed. I mean, regardless of whether they're making raised beds or growing in the flat, um, they could go out there and simply put down a thick layer of compost and have both continuing weed suppression and fertility all in one. Now, most of the growers that I was talking to did not keep putting on that much compost because, um, in fact, I talked to some growers who who had gotten their organic matter up into the low teens, which, right, sounds like it sounds like the kind of problem that most gardeners want to have, right? Most people would love to have um, organic matter um, in the double digits. And so um, yeah. some of them I talked to, they even um, had a problem with the plants blowing over because their 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 soil was so light and fluffy it was almost like potting soil you know their their field soil was almost like potting soil it was so high in organic matter and so um i feel like those growers may have they have found out how much is too much organic matter and so they stopped applying so much compost and let their organic matter percent come down closer to 10 percent which should be a really good number um as as organic matter um just has so many beneficial effects for um on anything that wants to grow uh that's why growers are are always trying to increase the the amount of organic matter 
um, and adding compost. You know, one of the many reasons that growers are adding compost is to increase that increase that level of organic matter. But what I've heard so many times from growers is is that they're they're doing the right things, right? They're adding compost, they're cover cropping, but their um, their organic matter levels are not are not um, going up despite their best intentions. And so I think what's going on there is that tillage tillage burns up your organic matter. So uh, and that's part of the reason why tillage is effective. Okay, for one thing, tillage is a is a, a slate wiper, right? If you got if you got a weedy bed or um, uh, a lawn there. Um, for one thing, tillage can help kill kill whatever's growing there in the first place. But um, what it does is it, it whips an unnatural amount of air into the soil. And so that that unnaturally high amount of oxygen, it does increase the rate of decomposition, which releases some nutrients. So that's that's why tillage is effective, because it it um, it releases nutrients. But that increased rate of decomposition um, happens at, a, at the expense of our organic matter and also releases carbon dioxide because you're whipping that that uh, oxygen into the soil and so that that oxygen is combining with the carbonaceous parts of the plants and you've got oxygen and carbon combining to make carbon dioxide and so you've got you've got you're losing the carbon from your soil and it's going the last place you want it to be is up in the atmosphere and so um so that's why um that's why a lot of the growers that I talked to, when they stopped tilling, they finally saw their organic matter levels coming up. Because I feel like I feel like uh, organic growers uh, who are doing a lot of tillage and not seeing that organic matter level come up, it's kind of a one step forward, one step backwards kind of thing. It's like, oh, we're cover cropping and adding adding um, compost, which which are fantastic things and should be increasing that level of organic matter. But when you're doing a lot of tillage, that's you're you're burning it back up again. And so that's that's how you can be in this situation where you're adding a lot of organic matter, but not seeing the amount of organic matter go up, let's say, on your soil test uh, because it, you're adding it and you're also burning it up. And so it's a way um, it's a way for growers to really increase um, the amount of organic matter, which will make things grow better and um, should also sequester some carbon. It should keep keep that carbon down in the soil uh, where you want it to be instead of, of being up in the in the atmosphere. And so so that's why in the book, you know, I say that that no till I think it's equally about climate change. It's about it's about farm profitability and um, and about making things grow better because it, sh it should help all, all of those things. So. Um, OK, so please. can I ask you a question? So last summer I started my first uh I tried my very first no-till experiment. So I grew a cover crop of buckwheat and then I when it flowered I chopped it all down and I just let it sit on top of the bed and my husband is looking at me like I am totally insane and no if I would have broad forked that in would that still be cons like I just let it sit there and then I planted like kind of like dug holes to put my, I was putting raspberry canes yeah. in to make a raspberry bed. But if I would have like turned it in with the broad fork, would that have been okay? Or is that still disturbing that, what do they call it? The armor and everything? Yeah, or good, like, good question. I think you, yeah, you're referring to uh, armor on the soil, which is a, which is a concept that has been, a lot of people have talked about. I think um, there's, there's a, uh, there's a rancher up in North Dakota named Gabe Brown. And he he wrote a book called Dirt to Soil, which is is um, 
is really excellent, and I can I can I can also recommend to to readers on No Till. He's definitely on a larger scale. He's he's I think he says he's ranching somewhere in the the na- uh, neighborhood of five thousand acres up there in North Dakota, and and his his method he, he involves uh, livestock and rotation. Um, but that's a that's a concept that I've heard him and a lot of the other no tillers talk about. So armor on the soil. The the idea is that we have um, a lot more erosion and the soil gets beat up more. Uh, you know, soil soil does not want to be bare. The, the, there's there are not there are not many um, there are not many examples in nature where you'll find bare soil other than a recent landslide. And so the the microorganisms in the soil they, they really want to be protected by the, a layer of vegetation. And so I think that's what you're getting at with your your armor on the soil. And so um, really, it sounds to me like what you're describing is is almost like a, a version of the the um, the roller crimper no-till. And in, it sounds like instead of rolling and crimping, so your cover crop, your buckwheat in that that case, sounds like you chopped it down. And so that's that's really um, it's what you're describing is very similar to what some of the growers in the book who use the roller crimper method are are doing. You're just you're just getting there by chopping it down instead of rolling and crimping and because um what what these growers would do is they would get the the uh, lush a lush cover crop going and then and then and then kill it and mash it down and then um yeah dig dig little holes either either on a smaller scale dig holes and transplant straight into it so it's 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 a very different look than than people are used to you know people are used to this sort of like chocolate soil you know, they, they want to be planting into something that's perfectly fluffed up and weed free. And so to be there, there are pictures in the book, in fact, that I got from one of the growers. Uh, I was going to say that the pictures in your book are awesome. They illustrate oh, things. Oh, really good. Because well. I because um, I, you know, in most cases I was there and 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 took the pictures. And that's why I'm I'm so grateful to all the growers who let me come bug them in their busy season, right? Because I didn't want to come see them in December. I wanted to come see them in July, August, and September when they're really busy. But when when they have the pictures, and so there's a, there's a there's a picture in there from one grower who who roller crimped a crop of rye, I think it was down. And then you so you see this you see this these long beds that are covered in all this organic matter. You know, it's it's nothing that you that anybody would normally plant into. But what he's done, so he's killed that rye and then he's just taken little a little shovelful soil of out a, a little shovelful of soil out, put maybe a little compost in the hole and then threw a tomato plant in the hole. So you see all these little green happy tomato plants planted into um, what looks like mulch which he's grown in place and so um, I think, in, you know, I guess your question about the broad fork is a really good one because one of the, the the frequently asked questions that I get asked about no-till is sort of like how untilled is no-till? You know, like some people and, – and I want to say it's not an orthodoxy, at least not to me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let people um, call, call whatever they're doing, whatever they want to call it um, because – my goal with the book was not to, that every single person um, stops tilling. I wanted to show people what the advantages are. I think some people might not realize that they're trapped in a cycle of of building up their organic matter and then burning it back up again with tillage. And so I wanted people to see the advantages. But it, it, it to my mind, it's not an orthodoxy. To my mind, if I can even just show growers some ways that they can even just reduce tillage, even if they don't get all the way to completely no tillage, 
that that is a huge um, that would be a huge benefit for growers to just find ways to till till less. So um, there definitely are individual preferences there. Some of the growers take sort of a no steel in the field approach. I mean, they really don't don't do almost anything um, anything mechanical with the soil. And then a lot of the growers do use a broad fork. Because as you, as you know, things may become compacted. And so the broad fork is a pretty non-invasive way of, of, of fluffing up the soil a little bit when it gets compacted. So as far as I'm concerned, a broad fork is, is game on for, for no-till. Um, because to me, what tillage, what tillage really means is, is, is deep disturbance of the soil. I'm thinking moldboard plowing. I'm thinking deep rototilling. So I think... I think when you're broad forking, you are not killing all the, the microorganisms in the soil. You're not inverting the soil layers. Really, unless unless you're really aggressive with it, you're not really even disturbing the top of the soil. You know, you're sliding the broad fork in, leaning back on it, and and um, fluffing the soil without without even turning the top of the soil. So, as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I a lot of the growers use broad forks, and I think that's that that makes sense. Um, a lot of the growers are using a tilther, which is a tool that I believe was developed by Elliot Coleman with Johnny's. And so the tilther is 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 kind of like a mini rototiller, but it's on such a small scale, it's it's almost too much to compare it to a rototiller. It's it, uh, for for your listeners who aren't familiar, it's a it's a it's a tool that's about as half a about maybe half as wide as a, a 30 inch bed, and so it has uh, handles. You walk along as you're using it. And it has tines kind of like a rototiller, but they're very tiny. And the whole thing is powered by a cordless drill. The idea being that most farms have cordless drills on them and that you can you don't have to buy a whole nother power source. And it's such a non-invasive tillage implement that it can be it can be powered by a cordless drill. And so the idea was it wasn't made specifically for no-till um, no-till agriculture, but it was picked up upon by no-tillers because they realized that if you have a either a pretty clean bed, let's say you get to the end of one crop and you have a pretty clean bed or um, one of the methods that a lot of these growers were using to to flip a bed, let's say to go from one crop to another is um, with crops like carrots or beets, th there's very little residue left. Really, the only thing you'd have at the end of the crop is, is weeds, right? Because you've harvested, you've taken the whole the whole plant uh, when you harvest. But then there's other things like, let's say, broccoli. There would be a lot of residue on the bed usually at the end of the harvest or uh, salad mix or something like that. There would, be, there would be some plant material left from your crop. What a lot of people do, are doing is they're, they're going through and they're cutting it out uh, with knives or knives or um, something else just to get, the, get the, um, the organic matter off the top of the bed. And then once they have a, a, a fairly clean bed, they'll go in there and they'll either spread fertilizer and or compost. And then um, some of them stop there. Some of them either use enough compost or it's fine enough that they can just rake that out and direct seed right into the, the compost if they need to. Um, growers who are using less compost are finding that they need they need a finer seed bed for, let's say, direct seeding salad mix or direct, direct seeding most things you want a, a really fine seed bed for, right? So growers who are not getting a fine enough seed bed after just their normal bread, bed turnover, they will go back with a tilther and, and really kind of rough up and then smooth back out the top 
I don't know, half inch of the soil. I mean, it's, it's very, it's, it's not like rototilling where you're getting inches down and you're really, you're really mixing everything up. It's basically just roughing up and smoothing out the top, the, the very top part of the soil. So the, the tilther is one tool that people have been uh, finding very useful depending on the strategy of no-till that they're using. And then um, some people are also using a power harrow or otherwise known as a rotary harrow. So instead of, uh, if, if, if listeners aren't familiar, instead of, uh, instead of where a, a rototiller has that egg beater motion going on, uh, over and over, uh, the shafts on a, uh, a power harrow are vertically are vertical 90 degrees to the soil. And so, uh, a power harrow can stir, can rough up the, t- the surface of the soil without stirring and flipping, uh, the surface of the soil down, down lower. So, uh, and, and I should say that the people who are using a power harrow, which they, you can get tractor mounted par- power harrows, and there's also a there's also a walking tractor version of a power harrow. They're typically running them as as shallowly as possible. So they're really only they're they're getting as little of the soil, you know, maybe an inch, an inch of the soil. Um, they're running them as shallowly as possible. So. Uh, that's you know that's kind of runs the gamut of of tools that people are using and i know some people feel it's important that they're not using they're not using power harrows and things like that uh then and i i think i think it's uh you know i'm I'm not i'm not here to judge i really just wanted to um see what people were doing and and have this book be like a smorgasbord you know growers can just read it and say, well, I like this technique more than this technique, or this technique is going to work with my soil and climate. And I just want to give people the options without judging any of them. And uh, but, but everything in the book I thought was pretty was pretty legit. There's just different ways. There's just different ways of of doing no-till. And some people want to be completely non-mechanized in by hand, and the, and they found very efficient ways to do that. And then some other people want to be just like machinery or they do want to scale it up more and have found ways to do no till uh and incorporate tractors and 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 uh walking tractors and in, in, in equipment like that so um and th- that was the most interesting thing to me is because i i love farm tours right so i uh, yeah it's true every every farm uh there's uh every every farm ha- farmer has their own way to grow and so it's just interesting for me to go out there and um be able to uh, pick pick these growers' brains and then and then talk about it in the book, so that so that so that you know my my idea was that not somebody would would read it and say oh this is the way to do no till that they would they would they would pick and choose from the various methods and and cobble something together um, that works for their farm and maybe even invent something new. So I really just wanted to get people thinking beyond tillage because it's such a paradigm, right? Every almost every farm does tillage. If you're driving around in a rural area in the spring, you expect to see, uh, you, you know, large fields tilled up, and mm-hmm. and so I think that um, there are, there are a lot of advantages for people to um, consider consider just not not tilling, and um, and and that they might even be better off um, without it. Oh dang! Sorry, uh, did I not? Did I mute my mic and not turn it back on? Oh, did I miss all that? I was saying that I thought you did such a great job with this book and and showing such a diverse um, group of farmers, and that it's just great getting this information out there and like having people start to have a resource where they can can learn about these things and where they can um, 
they can find out about all the different ways to do it. Like, I think that's one of the, and you've picked such great, like a, a nice group of different farms. There's flower farmers in here. There's vegetable farmers in here. And there's lots of different techniques. And again, like I said, there's tons of pictures that show things. And um, I actually interviewed Denise and Tony Gates from Bear Mountain Farm. And they, they were just fabulous. They talked for like two hours about everything they're doing. I didn't realize at the time they were no-till. But I never even heard of no-till until I started my podcast. And like it was interview number 17 with John Moore. And like at the, we're at the end. And like I guess I was so nervous about the recording. I was like, um, wait, did you just say don't dig? <laughs> and he had to like explain it to me all over again. So sometimes people like have to like this information has to be like digested and like explained again. Before we get to the root of things, we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links. Did you know that you could support the Organic Gardener podcast without doing anything differently? If you're going to buy something on Amazon.com, since I'm an Amazon affiliate, if you go to Amazon through a link on my page, which every book that is listed on my website is linked to Amazon.com, you don't have to buy that book, but anything you buy that day from Amazon um, will give me a very, very small commission, but... I got to tell you, it would sure help pay for, you know, just some of the basics it costs to um, keep the podcast up there. So if you like what you hear and you did want to give me just a little bit of support, um, that would be a great way for you to do it. If you're already going to Amazon to purchase something, um, like I said, all the books are linked up to um, because I am an Amazon affiliate. And so uh, just if you didn't know anything, you don't have to buy that specific book. But just if you go to Amazon through my website, um, they do still give me a commission. So um, thanks for your support. No matter where you garden, a few key practices can help prevent problems. Plants, like people, get sick when they are under stress. And I found that if any part of my garden suffers from prolonged stress, insects and disease will move in shortly thereafter. So be sure to water, weed, and check for bugs and diseases regularly. Remove sickly plants at once and dispose of them in the burn pile or trash, since disease spores don't always die in the compost pile. By spotting insects early, you can take swift measures before the problem gets out of hand. This is just a great piece of advice from Erin Bazankian's Floret Farms Cut Flower Garden, Grow, Harvest, and Arrange Stunning Seasonal Blooms. If you haven't read this book, you definitely want to check it out if you're doing any kind of gardening, but especially if you're doing flower gardening. And you can get this book or any book at Amazon by going to the theorganicgardenerpodcast.com, click on the recommended books page, and they'll there's a link there that will sponsor or help support the organic garden podcast while getting you a great book but what i was saying yeah. is that like at the end of my show i do this thing kind of like a lightning round where i ask like some quicker questions like do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden or the form farm that you kind of have to force yourself to get out and do yeah well it's funny you asked that i mean it's tillage i mean you know it's one of the things like i said i'm not i'm not an equipment guy yeah. i always just i always just 
hated the day when I would have to to you know had pulled the pulled an old crop out and had to get out the tractor or the rototiller and till everything up. You know that that was that was one of definitely one of the reasons why I got to this point is because that that was one of my least favorite activities. And plus plus it's a waste of time. You know it's if if you could go from crop to crop without without having to making a bunch of passes over the bed. You know, that's, that's the way farmers look at it, right? Is that, that, um, to either pr prepare, prepare a bed or between, uh, sometimes between crops, you, you know, you potentially plow, potentially, um, disc harrow, potentially spring tooth harrow, um, rototill. That's, uh, that's four passes right there. And some people even do more passes with bedding up and things like that. Right. So, Regardless of what scale you're on, if you can reduce the number of steps between crop A and the next crop, um, you're going to be ahead of the game. And so, so it's not only that I don't like rototilling, which I don't. It's it's also that if that I can cut that step out, um, and kind of the signature, one of the signature innovations of some of these farms is that they could um, go from one crop to the next crop within 24 hours, or some some of them would strive to do it the same day. Right. Because they would get they would finish harvesting a bed. And in some cases, the bed was pretty clean or they would have to cut out some organic matter. And then they would simply go out, sprinkle on some sprinkle on some fertilizer, sprinkle on some compost, uh, maybe maybe broad fork it. And then they'd be ready to replant. So uh, I think, it, yeah, I don't I don't like doing all that that cultivation stuff. You know, I want to focus on on the growing and I and, think not only does it save time, but it saves like energy and manual labor. And like, um, I know Mike, we, I can't remember, like he saw some sponsored ad on Facebook and we clicked on it and we ended up watching like the whole video on YouTube. And he was like, wow, that's some pretty powerful stuff that could save me a lot of energy. And then it gives, allows you like, you know, what's the big thing that business people are always saying every time you say no or every time you say yes you're saying no to something else and so it's going to free you up time and energy to focus on something else well we're at the end of it because i know you've been talking for a long time and you're probably busy and just we appreciate everything you've been sharing with us today like tons of golden seeds and i think you were saying like it's it's kind of a mindset change but like at the end of your book you talk about how people realize that over time the benefits just keep increasing and increasing as the longer they do it yeah, well, ex exactly. That's that's what I was thinking about talking about the bed um, turnovers. Is that um, most most soil has tons of weed seeds in it, and so it's it's a self perpetuating cycle where we where we rototill them up and churn them up, and so we we express we 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 expose an, a fresh new crop of weed seeds every year that we do that, and so it's one of those self perpetuating cycles. Is that we cultivate and we till to deal with the weeds that we're churning up because we're cultivating and tilling, and so. There, um, it's true that after when people make the decision to stop tilling, um, they once they've worked the the seed bank the seed bank down that's in the surface of their soil. If they stop turning it up, then the weed pressure goes down over time, and so that's one of the things where it may be hard. You know, one of the things I heard from a lot of people was that the first year or two was harder. Go, going no-till, but that once once they had done it for a few years, the benefits just just build and build. As you know, as 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 you work that weed seed bank in, down in the top of your soil, and as the bio, the biology of your soil um, gets better and better, a lot of these a lot of these methods seem to get better over over time. And so 
I think that's uh, that's it. You just have to change your mindset from from chilling everything up and churning the weed seeds up every year to just letting it letting it be and really kind of uh, building building your soil up. But um, you know the okay. So I have one other question about like you can talk about weed seeds, but what about like like my our, my husband's big one is like crabgrass. Yeah, that is that what you call like a perennial weed in your book? Yes, something yes. that grows by its roots and it's not the seed it's the roots that just like are so deep and so like one lady i talked to in missoula which is like a seventy thousand person city she's like i think the crabgrass is connected from one end of the city to that next underground like <laughs> yeah quite possibly and in fact yeah that's a, i'm glad you brought that up because that ended up being the bane of a lot of these no-till growers and really more for getting the plots established than uh than than a long-term problem because what would happen is that some of those perennial weeds, I'm thinking, depending on the part of the country, um, Johnson grass, crab grass, um, dock, you know, Canadian thistle, you know, yeah, these these are things that um, are are deeply rooted and can survive can survive one period of tarping or one period of um, of solarization. So. Um, the, the the issue that people would have is that they would um, they would they would let's say do they would do tarping right you know they would put put a tarp down on an area to try to prep it for some no tilling for a month or two and it would it would kill off the annual weeds and it would get some of those weed seeds to germinate and then die under the tarp right because they would it would be moist and warm down there under the tarp the weed seeds germinate and then there's no sun so you've taken out a whole generation of surface weeds. But there are some some docks and Johnson grass and things that could survive a pretty long time. You know, they have they have root reserves and so they can survive um, uh, occultation or solarization. And so um, growers would have to find some other way to, to deal with those. And so that could be um, in some cases if they wanted a really quick start. One one method that we talk in there is uh, the cardboard method. And so I would say. Um, if growers had um, had really pernicious weed problems uh, of the perennial type that they could they could consider trying to it would still be worthwhile to try to prep the area with some solarization or occultation. But then they might want to lay down, put down a layer of cardboard, um, either if you're doing a fine, more a fine seeded crop, you could put down a layer of cardboard and then put down a thick layer of compost on top of that and then seed directly into the compost. Um, for transplanted crops, it might be more like put the compost down and then put cardboard on top of that and then keep it on the soil with some wood chips or more compost or something like that. That way you can transplant through the cardboard. But the, the idea in every case is that you've got a biodegradable mulch here, cardboard, that is is going to break down over time, but will last for long enough to really smother out most of those perennial weeds. And so and that's that's one thing that, that comes to mind. But um depending on depending on how many of those perennial weeds um, that people have they're going to have to to take that into consideration because some of those perennial weeds are strong enough and long-lived enough and have enough energy down in the root that um that they can come up through four or six inches of compost so that's that's really you know that's that's i think that's the value of seeing the book is that you can see how different growers um, dealt dealt with things uh, with, uh, with with perennial weeds like that, but that's that's uh, that's definitely a problem. 
but um, for getting things started. But once again, once you get those things smothered out and gone, I mean, some some growers would cut them out and remove, uh, dig them, uh, dig them up and remove them. Uh, so once you've got those gone, then then you, you then you shouldn't have to deal with that again because you're not you're not churning. And if those things, if seeds for those things blow in, you sh- they, they're much more, e- they're much easier to control when they're really small and have just germinated. And so the idea is that if you stay on top of your weeds and work your weed seed bank down, you're only dealing with what's blowing in. And that should be much less than, than what pe- most people are dealing with um, in tillage. And one of the, the, one of the things that is particularly good for gardeners is that that most of the methods in the book, I would say all the methods except for the the roller crimper method, can be scaled down almost infinitely. You know, you can you can you can go, uh, you know, you can do a test patch really as small uh, as small as you want. It, let's say I'm just thinking if somebody's here listening to this and they they're thinking, well, um, I've got my garden, you know, my garden's uh, uh, I've got my garden the way I've been doing it for years and. Uh, I'd love to have less weeds, but maybe they're a little skeptical. Well, um, they can keep keep gardening the rest of the garden the way that they want to, and then they can start a, a little no-till patch. And once they've gained the confidence with that system, they can just they can pretty easily um, easily expand it. And so I think that's uh, that's that's one of the benefits is that it's 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 usually very low cost. You know, it really doesn't require any equipment or anything. There should be it should be a, a very a low or no investment method that can be that can be tried on a very small scale. And once once growers get comfortable with the method, then they could um, then they could scale it up uh, if they wanted to. So I think there's there's a lot there for growers of of all sizes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great suggestion. Start small in a little area. Uh, so what is your favorite activity to do in the garden or on the farm? Well, I like grow tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like, I like doing all the maintenance on it, on them, uh, the, the pruning and trellising and all that kind of stuff. And I like, I like picking them too, because I feel like that's what it's all about. Right. We're all, we're all growing them to get to get to that point. Um, but, um, Strange, you know. I know we we all have our our more and less favorite tasks around the garden, and and so that would that would be mine is main, maintaining and picking my tomatoes is probably my thing. How about what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Oh well, you got a lot to choose from. Yeah, I know. I mean, I feel well. Okay, so the funny thing, I'm glad you asked that because in um, so most of us, I feel like most of us here for have heard for years that that tillage is bad for the soil but there just wasn't any any um there wasn't really any alternative and so um that's why i'm so excited about the information in this book because i feel like it's 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 sort of been like okay well i'm not supposed to till but what am i supposed to do and so here here's a bunch of ideas from a bunch of growers who are who are operating profitable farms um with without tillage and so and I do think, you know, when we're talking about organic growing, it all comes back to the soil. If, you know, if you can if you can have healthy soil that's alive, um, the plants are going to do better. And so I guess that's, you know, I think that might be the advice of the day is to um, is that tillage tillage is bad for the soil. And, and, and that that understanding, that advice led me to um, thinking about how to get around tillage, um, which is where the, really where the book came from. 
Well, my listeners know I love it. I, my mom's always like, don't say I love this all the time. But I do. I mean, especially like I'm so big on like creating green jobs and like helping our planet. And just um, you've really like given a solution. And just I also love that it's in a book because I'm big on books. Because I think a lot of this information is out there on YouTube. Um, but just like you've combined it really nicely. And, and again, like you put it in a book. Uh, because you know, who wants to sort through YouTube? And I am not the biggest fan of watching videos anyway. That's why I'm a podcaster. Um, how about what's your favorite tool? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without Andrew? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think especially in the context of no-till, just a tarp. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm doing because I'm, I'm trying to adapt some of the ideas on my farm to, to no-till as well. Um, and so we've got a lot of snow on the ground right now. But um, one of the things that I love about these no-till methods is how 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 passive they are in a way. Because uh, you know, I had one of the growers in the book tell me that when he wants to t- when he wants to break in a new a new field, um, he just thinks about it. The, the previous season, he just goes out and puts out. You know, if he, he if he wants another quarter acre of field, he'll put he'll just put down a quarter acre tarp. And so maybe not everybody's growing on even needs even that much field. So. I thought I, I know I, I have a variety of tarps from over the years. And so so last last fall before the snow flew, I went out and put put a tarp, um, just tarp down some areas that I wanted to reclaim as a garden. And easy, put it down, walk away. Uh, of course, I had to I had to put sandbags and cinder blocks on them and stuff just to keep them from from um, blowing away. So now out there under the snow, I have I have tarps down that have been there for months. Because they told me that the longer you do this, the better it's going to be, right? If you know, if you put a tarp down for a month or two, uh, you'll kill most of what's there. If you can do even longer, it'll be it'll be even better. So I have tarps down on my place from last from last year that are sitting there under the snow, and they're already uh, when the snow melts for me to come back and pull them back. And I'm hoping that when I pull them back, I find. Um, there's not there's nothing growing down there and that I can I can what I plan on doing is putting down fertilizer, putting down compost and just planting straight into that, having having just been prepped, uh, prepped with a tarp. So um, I'll say I'll... that was a big takeaway I got from your book is that a lot of these farmers are thinking in the fall and prepping their beds in the fall and putting those tarps down in the fall. That was like a really big takeaway I took from your book. Yeah, actually, and and that's you know I think I think in some areas it's more common to prep in the fall than others, and it's not it's not really common up here where I live because uh, we just have we get so much snow the fields tend to get really muddy. But then it's an even bigger problem. All, all the farmers talk about around here in the springtime is uh, when they're going to get on their field, right? Because because we have all the snow and then it's got to melt, and then once it melts, we call it mud season. You know, because we even have a layer of frost. So our mud season means the snow is melted, it's muddy, and it, it gets super muddy on top of the soil because you'll have a layer of frost down in the soil, preventing the the, um, the moisture from going all the way down. And so um, all farmers talk about in the spring here is when they're going to get on their fields. And then if th- this takes that whole equation out, then you're not, you're not beholden to when you can get your tractor on because, of course— um, then it's really muddy and that you're going to, you have to, your, your impulse is to plant as quickly as possible, but then you have to, you have to end up having to restrain yourself until it's, um, 
until it's dry enough for you to get on there without the tractor slipping and without compacting your fields. And so, so yeah, that's actually, that's something I want to go, go more towards is once I've got this system going, cause right now I'm, I'm basically reclaiming an old garden space, have tarps down and, um, and plan on pulling them up and prepping in the spring. But I'm thinking if I get this system going next year, I could, I could do my bed prep in the, I could do my bed prep in the fall, just put it all to bed with a tarp and then pull it back in the spring and just and not even have to do bed prep, just just plant. Uh, because that, that, I think w- once again on the tarp here, I mean, the tarp, the tarp can be s- turned into such a such a great farm tool because in addition to prepping ground, it can also be used as a placeholder. Right. Because if you've if you've harvested something and then in, let's say you don't have you don't have something to put put there right away or uh, you're busy and you don't plant something. Well, what's going to grow there? Weeds. And so uh, the, the tarp is just a really easy way. If you, if you look out there and say, I'm not going to get to that spot for a while, just tarp it. It'll, 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 um, it'll prevent anything from going there and it'll keep doing its job of, of warming up the soil, keeping weed seeds germinating and then killing them when there, there's no sunlight. So, so I, I, I'd say really through the writing of this book, the tarp has kind of become my favorite all-purpose farming tool. I don't know if maybe it stuck out to me more because I just did this interview with this woman, Mandy Girth, who's a farmer around here. Um, and she talked about how much they use tarps. And so, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe that. And then I was just like, I remember last summer, like looking at Mike, he has what I call the mini farm, which is like, I don't know, a third of an acre to a quarter of an acre that we just kind of developed like three or four years ago when we dug a deeper well and like a lot of the spots where like he was going to put things like green beans and tomatoes that can't go in the ground to after the frost you know all the weeds were growing last year and so I was thinking as I'm reading your book I was like oh well he could just tarp those and then he won't have those weeds growing and also like it would warm the soil too right here in cold Montana so that maybe they could go in the ground sooner the things that have to go in after the frost is gone yes yeah exactly should warm the soil up and get get it ready a little bit sooner get all that biological activity going right because if you are if you're using organic fertilizer you need uh what regardless of whatever what your fertility source is you need that biological activity to keep making it available so yeah get all get all the get all the soil life going before you even put your crop in there i think it's brilliant cool well andrew what's your favorite recipe to eat from the garden Oh, that's, that's hard. Cause I, I like to cook and I, I'm, uh, oh, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, one, one thing I do like to make with tomatoes is a tomato pie. So, um, I think this is a, maybe it's a Southern or Southeastern recipe where you take a pie crust and you put, you have to kind of dry out the tomatoes, but if people go out and look for it, uh, that really is one of the favorite, my favorite things to make in the summer with my favorite crop. And it tells me that summer's arrived when we can make a tomato pie. You basically layer layer um tomatoes and onions and basil in a in a pie crust and you make a topping uh there are a few different ways to make the topping some people combine cheese and mayonnaise which sounds weird but but even my my wife who doesn't like mayonnaise she she likes it um uh somehow it bakes and it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't come out like mayonnaise so uh can i say she likes the tomato pie yeah we all we all like the tomato pie it's just it's just really delicious and it's a way to eat a lot of tomatoes too cool i think lisa ziegler i had on for a guest talked about that uh how about your favorite internet resource where do you find yourself surfing on the web the most 
Oh, well, let's see. I look at growingformarket.com a lot just because we have, um, there's so many, we have over 1,500 articles that have been archived. So what, what, what happens on Growing for Market is when, uh, when a magazine first comes out, the articles are available as the, the full magazine. And so then, then we do, we archive them. So we, we, um, we make the articles uh, into standalone, uh, standalone HTML documents. So that people can people can search the website and so and see what we've said over the years on any any topic you know no till parsnips whatever whatever people might be looking at I'm trying to think where else um, uh, maybe I'm a bad person to ask because I spent I spend so much time on the growing for market site that I kind of that kind of uh, becomes my go. -to. I thought you were gonna say Johnny's because so many of my guests say Johnny's. Yeah, but I, you know what? The search bar is the tool I use on my website the most, so I know how that goes. Yeah, yeah. Johnny says a lot of good resources too. That's a good point. How about what's your favorite reading material or book besides the organic no-till farming revolution? Uh, book a book of the moment. Uh, no, like your favorite garden book or magazine. Oh, uh, and I guess you it could be growing for market too. Yeah, um, yeah, growing for market, and um, um, trying. I'm trying to think something that would be something that um, is pretty is pretty universal. Um, that that I really like that dirt to soil book um, with by Gabe Brown. By Gabe Brown, yeah. Uh, I've been trying to get him to come on, but I he hasn't uh, answered me yet. So he finally friended me on Facebook. So that's a good start. Oh. Uh, all right, well, Andrew, here's my final question, but get ready, it's a doozy. Oh, boy. If there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about, a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you see, feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's pretty... It could just be no-till. <laughs> Sorry, what, what was the last thing you said? I said it could just be no till, but I asked this question. This is my favorite question I ask of the whole show. Yeah, well, definitely the thing—the thing that worries me the most—is is climate change, um, because it's all, all the predictions on that have turned out to be um, worse. You know, it, it, climate change is is progressing faster than anybody uh, thought it, it would, and so um, yeah, I have a I have a five-year-old little girl and a seven-year-old little boy. And, and I'm just, I'm very worried about what, what the world is going to be like that they're going to inherit from us. So, so, um, finding ways to deal with that. And I do think that, um, I think that no, I'm no till as far as sequestering carbon. I, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in it. In fact, when, um, when I, you know, when I when I first got into interested in no-till about 15 years ago, it was really more from a not wanting to. Like I said, it was really more from a not wanting to spend my whole day on the tractor kind of perspective. Now I'm it's it's as much that as that I I feel like we need to stop um, we need to stop taking our organic matter from our soils and putting it into the atmosphere because um, as as the, the I got a, a really excellent. Uh, forward written from my book by Kai Hoffman Kroll, who's done some writing for the magazine. And he points out in there that a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere um, 
that's been human generated over the last 200 or so years. A lot of it comes from agriculture. And of course, some of it comes from burning fuels in agriculture, but but it also comes from the fact that we're we're burning up our um, the organic matter that's in our soil, and it's going into the atmosphere and contributing. You know, it's it's a double whammy because it contributes to climate change, and it also makes it, it makes our soils worse. And uh, the, there are certain there are places where they have really deep soils, uh, some like some parts of the Midwest where you can do that for a relatively long time because there's so much organic matter there before you start seeing uh, the 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 damage. But then there are places uh, like like in Maine, like where I live, uh, we don't have very deep topsoils because it was they were all scraped away by the uh, glaciers. And so uh, when we start breaking down the organic matter that's in our soil, we start uh, we start seeing it really quickly. And so. Um, doing the things that we can do to combat climate change, I feel like those are the things that are that are the most important because it's it's an enormous problem for us. And but but I do feel like small farming and gardening are are part of that because because I th- I really think that part of the problem is that um, we've we've developed a system of agriculture where people are fed by. Um, by by systems that are very far flung you know the 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 economics of agriculture dictate that you grow crops where they're most um where they're they grow the best naturally and then just transport them wherever they need to be so then so you have a an energy and carbon dioxide intensive farming system and then you have a carbon intensive um, transportation system getting them to the the actual people so as far as the magazine goes that's why i feel like one thing, one good thing that I can do for the health of the earth as well as the health of people is to encourage the small farming to come back. Because if we have a, um, if we have a more diffuse, uh, diverse small farming network that is, that is everywhere. If you, you figure anywhere where people are living, they're eating, right? So if we can just produce our food in a more ecologically, um, friendly method closer to where it's eaten, that's that's going to help. Um, that's going to help on uh, b- both of those sides of both uh, carbon um, releasing carbon from our soils into the atmosphere and then releasing it again when we transport the food. So that's why that's why for me uh, promoting promoting local farming is is um, the, the what we try to do with the magazine uh, growing for market is 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 one of the most important things that I can do to to, to work against uh, climate change. Andrew, you have been such an amazing guest today. And we have one more surprise for listeners, right? Like, did you mention that you were going to give a book, copy of a book to one of my listeners? I didn't. We should probably mention that. So, um, yeah, the publisher, New Society, they they were kind enough to offer to uh, to give a book away to uh, to to somebody from the podcast. So um, so, Jackie, I, I, I'll let you decide how to. Um, how to how to pick a lucky winner but uh but yeah new society is 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 willing to give a copy of the book away and so so if you want to set set something up for that um then somebody somebody could get that perfect well andrew just tell i guess we've kind of mentioned but just tell them your website it's um growing for market dot is that it or where's your website or like how do they connect with you yeah it's it's growingformarket.com so just spelled out g-r-o-w-i-n-g-f-o-r m-a-r-k-e-t dot com so uh you can go there um and check it out some of the some there is some content that people can see but we we are an old-fashioned publication you know been around for almost 30 years and so 
So we try, we essentially keep, we keep the magazine from being wall-to-wall ads by, by, by making, you have to subscribe to, to see the whole thing. So um, you can go, you know, check it out at growingformarket.com. Uh, in addition to publishing the magazine, we have a small, carefully curated selection of, of market farming books like, like The Flower Farmer and, um, and The Organic No-Till Farming Revolution. And we're, we're also selling Gabe Brown's book, The uh, Dirt to Soil. So um, the website is growingformarket.com. The, the code is GARDEN. If people, you know, if people want to get a book or even or try a subscription, if they put in the code GARDEN, all lowercase, they can get 20% off e- either or both of those things. And subscribers always do get um, get 20% off uh, books. So if they, you know, if they wanted to subscribe, and then then they can always get anything we're offering for for uh, 20% off. It's just kind of a perk that we that we offer to to uh, subscribers. So so I urge them to check it out if they want to see it. Uh, we'd be happy to send them a digital or print copy, a sample copy, so so people can check it out. But it's it's a it's a great resource. You know, it's 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 been we've been around for almost 30 years, and um, the the last uh, 15 years or so that have been digitized are all there online. And so, um, so there, there, there are thousands of articles that have been archived, um, o- over the years. And so, so it, it's really kind of, kind of a record of, of what, um, what, uh, what has been going on in the small farming community. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Just, I know you dropped tons of golden seeds and listeners are going to love this episode. I know they're going to want to check out your book, um, and I'll figure out a way that they can win it. And thank you so much for coming on today and sharing with us this morning. Yeah, it was a hoot. Thanks so much for having me on, Jackie. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local. Grow local.